Welcome to episode number 47 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring producer Braxton Pope. Braxton and I discuss his career as a producer, as well as the Kickstarter-funded film The Canyons, written by Brett Easton Ellis, directed by Paul Schrader, and starring Lindsay Lohan and James Dean. We'll delve into the guerrilla-style production process of The Canyons, as well as Braxton's choice to fund the film through Kickstarter, being one of the first major films to take that route. We'll also go into how Braxton defines his role as a producer, as well as his new film, The Trust, which stars Nicolas Cage. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And remember, you still have a chance to win a free download of the final draft screenwriting software by doing the following. First, you can like us on Facebook at Jog Road Productions. You can follow us on Twitter at Jog Road. Follow us on Instagram at Jog Road Productions. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions. And remember, write us a review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast. If you do all of the above, you'll be entered into a contest to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. And now we join producer Braxton Pope as he discusses the role of the producer in today's independent film world. You know, there's so many different types of producers. You know, there's the creative producer, the line producer, who's sort of the mechanics of how a production's functioned. You know, producers who go out and look for money. For you, do you sort of categorize yourself as a particular one, or do you feel like you're sort of all of those things simultaneously? I think the uh, the the term that maybe captures it best is holistic producer, um, describing what I do, which is to say, um, I think in this age, it would be very tough to just be considered a creative producer or uh, you know a financial producer. Um, I think you need to be ambidextrous. So you need to have taste and material, be able to, um, you know, hunt down stories. You need to know the mechanics of production. Um, you have to know banking. You have to know finance. Um, and so when you put together uh, all those different elements as a producer, then then you are a kind of holistic producer. Now, certainly there would be some executive producer types that are just uh, finance people that don't get so involved in the day-to-day um, and so involved in the creative decision-making. Um, but in terms of what I do, it's really a kind of soup-to-nuts um, experience. Uh, so you, for you, was there a particular project, you know, at the very, very beginning of your career that you felt the most passionate about that made you say, hey, I want to be a producer, I want to develop this, I want to get it off the ground? You know, I, I don't think I could uh, isolate one specific project. You know, uh, film has been incredibly important to me throughout my life. Uh, you know, beginning with uh, watching classic films with my dad growing up uh, and, and consuming an, an incredible number um, of films for years and years and studying it in college and then coming out. Um, to work in the film industry uh, after I graduated. So I think that, you know, my first job in the business was at Artisan Entertainment when it was live entertainment. Um, uh, 
and really, I worked in acquisition, so you were tracking movies, uh, and then you were going to the film festivals, Sundance, and um, identifying movies that uh, whose rights were available that you might make an offer on uh, to distribute. But I felt that uh, you kind of came in a little bit late in the process, creatively, uh, because often the movies are already finished when you're assessing them um, and running the numbers on them. Uh, so it was great business training and executive kind of cross-training, uh, but creatively wasn't as, uh, in terms of a career, as satisfying and, and, uh, as I wanted it to be. So I transitioned um, from being an executive in acquisitions to uh, becoming a producer where you're controlling the entirety of the process. You're identifying properties that you believe will make great stories, um, and you bring together uh, these collection of assets that allows you to make the movie. And um, well, going back then to what was sort of the first movie for you that you produced? I think it was like the Bond. Uh, what was it called? The- uh, it was a independently financed film, um, The Bondage, um, and that was the first uh, movie that I was a full producer on. I had read a script prior to that called The Specials that James Gunn, who's a good friend of mine, uh, wrote and um, a guy, Craig Mazin, directed. And I was an associate producer on that. Um, I had gotten it to my boss at the time and he found uh, some equity financing for the movie. Um, And that was the first... uh, film credit, but The Bondage was the first movie that I was capital P producer on uh, and overseeing the, the day-to-day production. Uh, and what were some initial lessons that you learned on that film? Was there anything that you felt that you kind of had a learning curve on that you eventually carried on to, uh, to other films that you produced? Well, it's an interesting experience because when you're working in an office at a studio and you know, working as an executive, you know, you're reading a ton of scripts, um, you have to run numbers when, when you work in acquisitions. So, uh, for instance, if you've targeted a movie that you uh, potentially want to make an offer on, um, that the studio wants to make an offer on, you uh, go to each of various departments, the television, uh, home video, domestic theatrical, the head of international, and you run three sets of numbers. You get three sets of numbers from each of those uh, divisions. Worst case, most likely, best case. Um, and those are, are based on comparable movies in terms of genre, budget size, director, um, concept, cast, of course. Um, and so, you know, really, um, you know, when you're doing that, it, it, it puts you on the other side of producing because you you have to when you're when you're bringing um, movies together you have to understand you know what the end product is going to be not only creatively but in terms of you know marketing and um, marketing and distribution so um, but in response to your question what's interesting is that you don't actually spend a lot of time physically on set when you're often when you're in these uh, kind of executive jobs. So, and I started out, by the way, you know, as an assistant to assistants, right? So a kind of sub-assistant and then, you know, making copies and coffee and then 
eventually kind of, you know, working your way up. And, and um, so I was by no means ever running a acquisitions department. Um, I left pretty early in my career. Um, but when you're on set, there's a, you know, there's a, all the film slang and terms and all the, uh, the nomenclature of, of set and, um, and the protocols and it's all a little bit foreign to you. So it was a very strange experience um, being on set, producing the movie, having not produced movies previously, having had, you know, some executive experience, but it's such a different uh, animal that, you know, there would be a, a key set PA, right, who might have done 20 movies yeah. um, that would know, in essence, kind of far more about the the Was that your jargon. first on-set experience as well? I had been on set for some movies that um, live entertainment had financed. So Suicide Kings with Christopher Walken uh, and, uh, and a bunch of other casts. So I, I would go down to set and observe set, but you're, you don't really have that much to do. Um, you know, you get the production reports and uh, because we put money into that movie, so making sure that it's on schedule, on budget, um, I was, a, as I said, I was a junior executive, so you're not really totally responsible for that much of that production. So um, it was just a much different experience when suddenly um, you're thrust into a situation where you need to shepherd the movie and make uh, a host of different decisions, um, yet you don't necessarily have the experience uh, that you'll have later on having been through. Yeah, you know many productions. So then, it's a, so a lot of delegating in terms of practical production to the line producer, to the you know production manager. That's right. You're you're really leaning on. Uh, you're leaning heavily on your line producer. Um, you're leaning on your UPM. Um, but that in and of itself, uh, I mean, there are a couple things about that. Even though I'm not a line producer, um, one of the things that I think can make you effective is really knowing production inside and out and having an expertise in the mechanics of production. Um, and then a lot of line producers uh, are line producers because they may not have um, necessarily uh, the taste profile that would make them successful creative producers. It just depends, but they may be better negotiating below the line contracts and uh, doing things that are discrete from some of the uh, above-the-line creative decisions. So I don't think you can just hire an experienced line producer, lean on them, and expect, you know, necessarily that the movie is going to turn out the best it can possibly uh, be, you know. So um, like all things, I think with experience, you learn, you get better. You try to absorb as much as possible. Uh, you try to surround yourself with key crew that are uh, artful and, and have a lot of expertise. Yeah. You know? um, how essential is it for you to, when you're putting together the initial development of a project, like let's say you have a concept or a book or a screenplay that you want to option, to put together sort of like an array of elements that seem like attractive to financiers, like a, a screenwriter who's sort of a veteran, a director that's well known and even you know a couple of actors is that sure. really part of the process at the very beginning for you? Yeah, I think that you know movies are incredibly hard to get made. You know, in fact, most producers just don't make that many of them. 
Um, and it, it's very difficult. You have a lot of moving parts. Uh, movies, even though you can make a high quality movie more cheaply now than ever before with the DSLRs and laptop editing and you know color grade and all the you know After Effects, all these different programs. Um, it's still expensive and you still need talented actors and there's just a lot that you're uh, marshalling toward a kind of, you know, finish line. So, uh, movies very, very hard to get made. I think that in order to attract the international sales that you need, the financing that you need, um, even to attract the cast, which then triggers the uh, foreign sales or pre-sales if you're using the pre-sales model in independent film, um, you need elements that are going to pique people's interest and attract people. So I'm always viewing movies as a kind of collection of assets, right? And that may be with a, a famous screenwriter. It may be um, with a great director. It may be with name actors. It may be, uh, you know, with award-winning cinematographer. You're always trying to bring on really artful elements that also... Uh, enable you to attract the other elements that um, in aggregation allows you to make uh, what you hope to be a great movie. Yeah, so it's sort of like with the Canyons, for example, you have Brady Sinellis, a, you know, a prominent writer, you have Paul Schrader, you have, you know, Lindsay Lohan. So in that example, that's sort of, those are elements that, you know, attract attention, that attract, uh, you know, possible financing in that case from Kickstarter. Right. Uh, which I want to ask you about, since that was sort of one of the first movies to really go the Kickstarter route, what were, I mean, what was sort of your initiative to go that way as opposed to sort of traditional financing, whether it be foreign pre-sales or private sure. investors? So we had the movie set up at Lionsgate. I had a, a, a first look deal at Lionsgate for many, many years. Um, they were very good to me. Uh, we had a movie set up that Schrader was going to direct um, it was a shark movie, of all things, a kind of genre uh, shark thriller called Bait that Brett uh, Alice had written in his kind of anarchic uh, style. And um, it was a very interesting script. Uh, so we, Lionsgate was taking international in the movie. Um, a couple other producers approached me with uh, a European financier who wanted to cash flow the entirety of the movie. And so we went into pre-production, went through the entire process, and he was the financier was spending some money um, on trade or some other things. We were going to shoot in Puerto Rico. We had to do a lot of research. We had shark wranglers and, you know... Production was was uh, was quite involved, and so required a lot of research, figuring out you know production and devising the production plan. In the meantime, the financier um, ended up uh, just somewhat disappearing, returned to Europe. Um, the find the movie imploded. Uh, you know, we were all working. Uh, based on some of the money that he had spent, but also on his representations. Um, Schrader had, you know, flown into L.A. and, and was working quite diligently. Um, so that experience, which is honestly not terribly uncommon in the independent film space. So sort of a financier coming in, putting in a little bit of money, but then backing away when the bulk of it's supposed to come in. Correct, to, correct. Yeah. 
And so he lost uh, on that deal uh, because he incurred costs in pre-production um, that can never be recouped because he didn't end up financing the movie. Are you allowed to sue at that point? Something um, like that? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. He, he breached contracts, right? Yeah. So, in fact, a number of people, uh, a number of people, I think, probably put liens on some of his, you know, business interests. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know all the specifics because that investor uh, and financier came from uh, these other uh, two producers who I guess had done a project with him successfully uh, prior to that. So they had some uh, track record and some reason um, to believe that, uh, that he would come through and was, yeah. it just you know, seems like a common story that I hear in so many films of any level you, need, you have your main elements and a financier comes in and just flakes completely. Yeah, I mean, so it's really, it was, it was the first time that that had happened to me, but, you know, operating in the independent space, I mean, you hear of it happening all the time. It's amazing. It still feels, in some regards, as kind of the wild, wild west, even though at the studio level and just the film culture in general, the kind of Robert Evanses uh, and the eccentric moguls and studio heads uh, in the days of, you know, hairstylists ascending to, uh, you know, Peter, Ryan, uh, or who am I thinking of? Uh, John Peters. John and, Peters. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like that has all just been um, flushed out of the business. And it's all, you know, people running um, the studios are all kind of accounts, investment bankers, MBAs, um, people with very strong accounting backgrounds. They're all business people. And it's very, uh, it's a very kind of buttoned up culture. It's not, um, certainly the way films and, and you know got made in the 70s and, and into the 80s um, and you don't have these kind of wild man and wild woman producers who are uh, you know these kind of intrepid you know characters and, and rogues you know so um, it's just it, it's a bunch of MBAs so um yeah, so the, we, we were in, we felt like we were in a good position, especially since Lionsgate, you know, has a great international. Um, and uh, when the movie imploded, uh, maybe a month or two later, Schrader emailed and said, you know, what Brett writes incredibly well are, you know, exactly what, it, what is inexpensive to shoot, which is characters uh, you know, attractive characters, you know, talking. And so he said, why don't we get Brett to write something, uh, you know, an original script, I'll direct it, you produce it, and we'll just go make it. And we'll finance it ourselves. Um, and we'll engineer it so that, you know, it, it could be shot very, very inexpensively. So I thought this was a great idea. I approached Brett... Brett and I have a, a production company. Um, they're very good friends. And uh, Brett was intrigued by the idea. Brett's a, a cinephile, has a lot of admiration for Schrader, who obviously is a very important figure in the, in the history of cinema. So he wanted that opportunity to work with Paul. Um, so he wrote this modern noir uh, that had been, you know, in his mind for many, many years. Um, the canyons, and we were just going to finance it ourselves. And and as our ambition kind of expanded, 
uh, as happens when you get very enthusiastic about something. We, we both quite liked Brett's script. Um, we decided, you know what, maybe we should uh, go on Kickstarter. We wanted to be very progressive in how we were putting the movie together. We thought this was an interesting kind of new wrinkle in the film finance world. Where was, uh, I can't remember, where was Kickstarter at that point in time? Were they, had they been around for a little bit or? They'd been around, but this was, you know, prior to the Spike Lees of the world going on it. Um, and it, it was, I, I would say it was, uh, people knew of it, but it was definitely emerging and was yeah. not, I think at that point, uh, really considered a consistent way to, you know, crowdsource projects. Um, but it was becoming, you know, bigger and bigger and more and more people were learning about it, talking about it, putting money into projects. Um, and frankly, when I went on it, I was worried about the perception that, you know, you have Brett Easton Ellis, you have Paul Schrader, um, you know, we got Lindsay, uh, and, you know, I felt like, uh, I don't know, I had some trepidation about, like, the perception that, like, why can't you, you know, get money from traditional sources with all these elements, but we wanted to just, we didn't want to take meetings, we didn't want to develop the script, we didn't want to go through the inevitable development process. Um, we wanted to just go make it and just go do it ourselves and take control and have autonomy. So, um, so we, we put in some of our own money. We just split it a third, a third, a third. Um, everything was, was done you, that Brett way. And Paul. Me, Brett, and Paul. Yeah. And then uh, I thought, well, you know, I'll just I'll try Kickstarter. Uh, you know, I... I, I uh, Talked to Paul. I said, hey, explain what Kickstarter was, why it may be interesting. You know, Paul is very gung-ho about uh, new techniques and new ideas in filmmaking. He doesn't kind of cling to the past whatsoever. Canyons was actually the first movie that he shot, you know, digitally. He's got a new movie he's shooting in October um, called Dog Eat Dog, which uh, I think he has some interesting production ideas uh, about how he's going to proceed with that film. But... Um, and Brett was, uh, was amenable to trying Kickstarter. So we put it up and, and it, it was great for not only getting the word out about the movie, uh, a bunch of resources beyond just the financial resources, which were great and much needed. Um, it also uh, allowed people to come to us with, um, different assets that ultimately helped the film. So Kickstarter was great. And, um, and that was, you know, perhaps a, a kind of anomalous or somewhat anomalous uh, crowdfunding experience. I, I'll speak on panels at film festivals sometime about crowdfunding. And yeah. I know that for a lot of filmmakers, they don't necessarily have those elements that are so well known. Uh, so it puts them in a, they have different challenges. What was your um, sort of press to get the word out there about the Kickstarter at first? Was it through social media? Was it... Um... I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, no, that's right. Primarily yeah. social media. Um, Brett has a huge social media presence, devotes time to it. He has such an interesting voice and he's such an, uh, as a consumer of culture, uh, he's an incredibly compelling thinker about, you know, cinema, novels, music, um, very, very bright, astute guy. So, uh, he has a large following, obviously, partially because he's controversial and, and 
Yeah. It's a great candor. podcast too. Right. Yeah. His <laughs> podcast is, is great. People reach out to him all the time to be on. Um, so yeah, so we, we got the word out through social media and, and just posting on, on Kickstarter. Um, and it really took off from there. And then with Lindsay at that time and James Dean, um, I'd read that, uh, I think it was in Good Magazine, I'd read a profile of James, and I thought this was an interesting uh, cultural moment with him. I wasn't familiar with him prior to that article, and I forwarded it to Brett, and he was quite keen on James and wanted to use him and, and really advocated you know, strongly throughout uh, the casting process to, to cast uh, James in that uh, lead role opposite Lindsay, but the the amount of media attention at that time was um, it was relentless. Yeah, yeah. and this was um, this was before. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, like with Sasha Gray, had she done the girlfriend experience yet? Or was she that- had done. Yeah, yeah, she had done the girlfriend experience. So, um, and Trader's friends with with Soderbergh. Yeah, um, you know who who later. Uh, uh, reviewed the movie, watched the movie and, you know, had some ideas and, um, but yeah, there was some precedent for using James and I I think that we talked about the girlfriend experience, um, when we were making the cannons. Yeah. It's sort of like kind of blurring the lines between, you know, sort of one form of media that's sort of considered like completely like out of bounds and then sort of mixing it with Lindsay Lohan, who's, you know, a mainstream, uh, movie star. That's right, yeah. And I think there were certainly cultural assessments that made it interesting. At the, you know, really though, in order, if you're trying to make a good movie, um, whether people think we failed uh, or succeeded, um, you have to make the decisions that you think are best creatively for the material. So we really, we looked at a lot of people you know, James auditioned multiple times and, you know, we felt that he was the right uh, actor for that role. So it wasn't, um, it it wasn't stunt casting for us. Um, And in fact, I think the adult film angle with him, uh, you know, potentially made us a little bit skittish because, you know, we were trying to, uh, we were trying to pull something together, granted in an interesting way, but that would would be narratively successful. Yeah, um, I was curious, sort of back to Kickstarter. Um, what do you now? There's so many Kickstarter campaigns for both, you know, big movies with you know big name talents, and also you know uh, smaller stuff of up and coming filmmakers. So, what do you think is sort of key to creating a Kickstarter campaign? Um, I don't know if that's too broad of a... No, no, it's a good question. question. I, I, You know, I think that in this day and age, I don't... You know, it, it bums me out and it's depressing how the studios just are so obsessed with brands and pre-existing properties. And I mean, how do you get a movie made if it's not a comic book or a board game or, you know, yeah. some some bullshit that Any exists? Kind of IP that's... Uh... Yeah, it has to be a pre-existing IP, right? So, um, you know, I think Kickstarter... And I'm sure there are people who follow it and, and scrutinize it more, more closely than I do at this point, but you just feel like you need some element um, that people know, 
And so whether, again, whether it's an actor or director or in the case of Veronica Mars was a TV series, you know, something that people recognize because it is just an original idea with, with actors that people don't know, or it's a director who doesn't have a track record who people don't know. Um, I think it could be hard to spur people to action. It's interesting to see ones recently that haven't worked out so well. Like um, there was one with Tom Sizemore and they didn't reach their goal. And then unfortunately the one recently with Orson Welles, last film, Right, they didn't quite get there. Um, yeah, it's just sort of interesting. I don't know if it's just sort of maybe just the nature of those projects. People just weren't into them, or yeah, um, yeah. The Wells one, I don't know. It's interesting. You know, I I put Bogdanovich in a, a music video I produced for Passion Pit, and um, we talked about Wells because he's such a Wells scholar, and that one surprised me a little bit. But there may just be I don't know the gross numbers um, for for contributions but I feel like my sense of it and again could be totally wrong but just my sense of, of the temperature is that yeah. maybe there's a little bit of like crowdfunding fatigue and and because there's so many projects and so many people um, soliciting and, and posting on Indiegogo and Kickstarter that there may just be it may have had a kind of cultural moment that was new and exciting and people were seizing those opportunities and maybe people are just a little bit inert to it now. Plus, too, I think some people are concerned, like, you know, because it's not like a traditional investment. So if somebody gives like a huge amount, like $100,000, they don't own a stake of the project. I don't know if that's ever been kind of a concern about like if somebody makes a big donation, are they going to come back like months later and say, hey, you know, your movie grossed this amount of money. Right, you know, give me a share. Is that ever- there, there have been talks about that? Yeah. Of course. I mean, I think if you're if you're able to, to put six figures into a movie, then um, you know, just be presumably you should be savvy it. enough to yeah. figure. You know, like get, get someone that can can place that money and make some make some smart bets. You know. Yeah. It's like I, I just had a meeting uh, here with with Sean Baker, who's quite um, you know talented, who who co-wrote and directed Tangerine and. You know, I mean, there he had a, a, a very strong track record prior to that movie. Uh, and yeah, that it was movie surprising was to hear about his struggle to raise the money for that movie. That's right. Yeah, his, you know, Starlet was great. Starlet was great. Takeout, and yeah, no, very talented guy. Yeah. And and you know, and ultimately he did that movie incredibly cheaply. And uh, yeah, but I mean, it's always uh, it's always hard to to find the capital to deploy. Um, in interesting ways with these uh, with these directors and filmmakers. Yeah, um, I'm sort of curious on the Canyons um, when the New York Times reporter came onto the set. Mm-hmm. Was that you know because I mean so many movies have reporters come onto the set, but I mean I'm sure it wasn't sort of what you imagined would happen with that article that came out. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I and have you a lot responded of... back to it in your Vanity Fair piece as well. Right down the road. Um, yeah, and look, I, I, uh, I'm, have become friends with Stephen Roderick, who wrote the article, who I think is, is a talented uh, author and journalist. Um, you know, he spent a lot of time, I think he was uh, concerned with being fair and reporting and observing. Um, I know that Schrader originally felt like the angle of the, the piece was going to be more on this new media way that we put the movie together uh, and obviously there um, was a, a shift in focus to Lindsay 
um, which is not all that surprising. Um, so, but I didn't really have any problems with the with the article. Um, and look, Lindsay's uh, team and Lindsay herself uh, expressed reservations uh, about allowing that type of access. Paul was adamant that we allow uh, the Times to embed with us throughout the production. Just in terms of even getting the word out there that this was going on and all the movie itself. Yeah, I think yeah. he felt like probably on one level there's a certain honor to the New York Times covering you know your movie so extensively uh, and there's an obvious benefit to that publicity as a result especially for a small independent film you're always trying to find ways of being heard above the chatter when you're an independent movie it's incredibly tough you don't have those massive studio dollars to market your film you know, they back up the, the Brinks truck and dump it on, uh, you know, broadcast to, to run, you know, ads, you know, a week before a big new release. And they just pound the culture with awareness of, uh, of their wide release movie. But when you're an independent film, yeah. you have to be, you know, canny and, and resourceful and try to figure out ways of carving out an identity and carving out awareness. It's very, very difficult. So... The benefits of having the New York Times in bed with the production, I think, were obvious yeah. um, for us because, you know, we felt like we were quite serious about, you know, making a movie and trying to make it good and, and doing what we do. It, it was a, a different conversation for, you know, some other elements uh, in, involved in the movie. But I understood that perspective as well. But we felt it was so important, you know, we were committed to allowing that. Yeah, I just wanted to go into the production process in that film. I mean, from what I understand, it was really like bare bones, guerrilla style filmmaking, and you guys were trying to, you know, get on locations that you sometimes may not have permission on, or right. trying to get to really, you know, interesting places to shoot. Right. Um, so, how was that sort of navigating that terrain and you know getting in there to uh, make the film the best it could be? You know, it's interesting. It's it's. Um, I'm in post production on a movie uh, that I quite like called The Trust with Nicolas Cage and Elijah Wood and Sky Ferreira. That's coming out in uh, probably March or April. You have Jerry Lewis in that. As and well. we do have Jerry Lewis. I'm surprised uh, that he doesn't act too often. No, no, he's he's <laughs> you know he's quite old at this point, and he lives in Las Vegas, um, as does Nick, and he plays Nick's father in the movie, and we we brought him in for a day, uh, which was quite entertaining. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, so on that movie, you know, you have enough resources to, if you're going to shoot on a street, you get, uh, you know, traffic control and you lock it down. Uh, you have the kind of proper production elements to be able to stage things properly and buy out locations and shoot where you want to shoot have enough extras on the on the canyons everything was a challenge because we didn't have the money uh, we had very very little money to uh, film uh, the movie so um, that meant finding locations that people would give us for free that meant we couldn't um, when we were doing a driving sequence we had to just shoot a guerrilla style we couldn't lock off Hollywood Boulevard 
uh, and you know we just had to follow Lindsay in a in a separate car, and you just um, you just try to be you know a hustler and resourceful and just yeah. you just try to make it happen. But it, it's much more challenging. And the other problem is that a lot of the locations we were able to to get cool locations, and I would go to my friends who owned restaurants or homes or that were architecturally interesting. Um, you know, we shot at, at Bar Marmont, but they'll give it to you when they're not open, since you're not able to compensate them properly. Yeah. And so your hours are super wonky, uh, which can be quite tough on the actors. Yeah. And then you, you have hard outs, um, like a Cafe Med, we had a hard out because then the lunch crowd comes in and then they don't want to lose that business because we're not paying them. Um, so it makes everything, everything quite hard. Yeah, I saw it too. There was a scene there where you shot at like the Century City Mall. Is that, right. Uh... Yes, we we tried shooting at another mall and were immediately pounced on by uh, security. Uh, and then, of course, wherever Lindsay went in public, just is a blizzard of paparazzi. And and then she also uh, has these, you know, really. Um, kind of stalkery types it just turns into can turn into a little bit of a little bit of chaos so she's a tough one to try and steal so shots compared to any normal I mean not normal actor but to other sort of named talents her she was a special type of challenge she was a way. special type of challenge I mean on, on a movie that Brad Furman directed uh, The Take that I produced uh, you know we had John Leguizamo and Rosie Perez and Tyrese and uh, Bobby Cannavale, actors that people knew, but when we uh, would shoot certain sequences, guerrilla style, totally different. And you felt that, um, and we also wanted a verite uh, feeling in that movie, but you could get away with certain things on canyons that actually, because of Lindsay, even though we reduced the crew size and were very, very lean in a lot of these cases. And well, we didn't have traders. Your, uh, normal crew on a day-to-day basis, like in terms of like really in the core of the set? Was it, uh, you know, we kept it We kept it quite minimal. So if there was art department, maybe we would have the production designer and maybe only one other person in the art department. Um, you know, maybe just an art PA and not even have an you know, art director every day. And, 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 you know, for every department, you just try and prune the number of people and then you stage, wherever your location is, you stage at that location. So there, there's no trailers. There's no base camp. There's no base camp. Yeah, exactly. So you're, um, you have to just be quite lean to, to make it happen. Um, and it was tough. It made it, it made it tough because, you know, Lindsay's an incredibly famous person and, and you know, obviously is also uh, tabloid fodder. Right, so the TMZs of the world and are just constantly hounding everything that she does. Uh, I was curious, once the movie's complete and you sell it to your distributor, how much control do you lose over how the movie's marketed, uh, sort of how it gets out there, whether it be in theaters or on demand? Sure. Is that really sort of in their hands? Like, for example, IFC, when you, when you sell it to them, Right. It's their property in a way. That's right. Yeah. So they, they, you know, they bought the movie, so they control the movie contractually. You have in your deal, you have consultation over, uh, you know, the marketing of the film. 
And so it kind of depends on your relationship with whomever the distributor or the acquiring distributor is. In the case of ISC, they're great. Ariana Baco, her entire team, Jonathan Searing, I thought they did a really good job marketing the movie. Anytime we had ideas about marketing the film or about poster art or the trailer, they were always very receptive. So we always felt like we had a good dialogue with them and, and you know, and they had good ideas about uh, the film. And I've since sold them other movies. So I was very happy with um, IFC as a distributor. And in fact, you know, we, we were able to bring certain elements. I'm, I'm friends with Kanye, and I showed him the trailer. Um, and, you know, he redid with his team some music um, just, just as a, you know, just to be a friend. Um, so it's always... Interesting when I hear Kanye is obviously a very controversial um, personality for for many people, but when you spend time with him, he's such an incredibly um, appealing person and thoughtful person and, and you know sensitive artist. Um, it's hard to reconcile with uh, somehow um, how people perceive him, but he was great. And so, but we had these interesting um, elements that we could kind of bring. Um, to the marketing of the uh, of the movie. Yeah, I read. Do you have a project in development with Kanye? I don't know if it's a music video or a uh, is it a film or we um, we have been talking about a couple different things. Um, uh, we talked about a film uh, project, and uh, I introduced uh, him to a good friend of mine, Gaspar Noé, uh, the director. So uh, they linked up in Paris, and I'd love to uh, produce a music video for Kanye that Gaspar would direct. So who knows, you know, whether that will happen. Gaspar has um, the U.S. distribution for his film Love um, later this fall, but uh, at some point it would be uh, amazing if they collaborated. It'd be yeah. quite, quite awesome. Wrap the trust. We're about to picture lock maybe in the next week or two. Bring on a composer to score the film. Um, but we're, we're getting near the end uh, of the post process. And, and Nick delivers uh, a really interesting, great performance in the, uh, in the movie. It was funny because he, to me, he, he delivers a, like a credible... Um, almost at times naturalistic which is a word he hates and, but I, I use naturalistic to just mean uh, that he's just eminently believable in the role that, that he created um, but of course his choices, his acting choices uh, are can be at times operatic are very original um, and so he has a whole acting method that, of course, isn't uh, naturalism, as we know. Um, yet to me, he has a kind of dual, there's a duality um, to what he accomplishes when he's given really good material and not the kind of exploitative um, you know, movies that sometimes actors will do 
you know, to pay bills. Yeah, it's but, great to see him back in those types of roles because for so many years he was doing like National Treasure and a lot of those action movies. So now it seems like you know Joe, the David Gordon Green right. film, and yeah. uh, you know this film as well. It's sort of he's back in that range of doing smaller films of doing films that are more nuanced in character. Yeah, so. yeah, he's, it's a very rich character in this movie. Uh, the brothers Brewer wrote and directed it. Uh, they wrote the script with uh, with a friend of theirs, um, Adam Hirsch, and, and um, it's really he's excellent. Nick is excellent in the movie. Elijah is excellent in the movie. Elijah Wood. Yeah. Elijah Wood. Yeah. So they play Las Vegas cops who are friends. They work together in this evidence locker unit, and it's somewhat of a dead end job. They don't get a lot of respect from their peers and colleagues, and uh, they end up. Uh, identifying an opportunity uh, for a heist and it's a it's a really remarkable mix of again kind of very real um, because this is all off strip Las Vegas which is kind of cinematically underexploited a lot was shot downtown but there's there's very little on Las Vegas Boulevard and none, none of the big uh, casinos. So it's really about like the people who live in Vegas. Vegas residents of yeah, that's right, yeah, which we just don't see very much. So um, yeah, Cage and Elijah, the interplay between the two, they have a very easy rapport in the movie, and their dynamic uh, is just quite compelling. So I think that's the spine of the movie. It's a kind of subversive, idiosyncratic crime thriller. Um, that's very character, and uh, yeah, I, I think um, I think audiences will like it. Yeah, and then uh, so once you wrap on that, sort of taking out to film festivals and you know trying to sell it to distributors is kind of the well, we already sold it to Savant. Savant's our domestic distributor, so they're going to release the movie in theaters in the spring. Um, but that also spring twenty sixteen, correct. Cool. Um, yeah, and then we'll we'll see about submitting to festivals where uh, we're kind of in that process as we're trying to finish the movie, um, and you know we'll see. And then uh, there's that other project that you emailed me about the uh, which is sort of about the development of ecstasy. Mm -hmm. And Steve Nash is he's attached to produce that. Yeah, so Nash, uh, Steve's been a friend of mine for many many years, uh, from when he played for the Phoenix Suns. Obviously, he has a relationship with Dallas, having played for the Mavericks prior to going to the Suns. He creates content, has been very interested in the, in the film space. And so this was a, a project. I sent him a bunch of the resource material on it. It was something that he responded to immediately. We had been talking about doing a project together. So he came on board. We're developing the, the movie. Dory Oskowitz, very talented director. I produced one of his... Uh, Passion Pit music videos, the one with Bogdanovich that I, that I mentioned earlier. Dory uh, directed an EDM doc for Vice and comes from the music world. He had a Grammy nomination for his Jack White video, uh, I'm Shaken. And so it was kind of the perfect storyteller for this milieu and this scene. And Dallas, the context of Dallas and legal ecstasy in Dallas in the 80s um, is just very unusual. And I think makes it more interesting than uh, had uh, had it come about, you know, in New York City or even San Francisco. Not to say that, that people weren't yeah, it's really an unexpected then, uh, place. It's an unexpected, unexpected context. Yeah. yeah, 
in, in how it brought people together and the ways in which it brought people together and uh, blurred different social boundaries as a result uh, is interesting. So we're taking a kind of ensemble Boogie Nights approach uh, to this story, which is quite rich. And um, we'll see how it turns out. Cool. And um, is there anything else that you have in uh, development at the moment that you may... Yeah, I have a movie that Brett uh, Alice wrote um, that Tim Hunter, who directed a very cool cult movie, River's Edge, Love with Crispin Glover and Keanu yeah. Reeves and others, um, Salon Magazine called it the darkest teen film of all time. Wasn't Dennis Hopper had like a really bizarre role in that film, yeah. I remember. He yeah. Was just... <laughs> no, and... and yeah, it's, it's so Tim. Tim directs a bunch of high class television. He's directed episodes of Mad Men and Breaking Bad and Hannibal and 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 uh, so I, I reached out to him and uh, he's going to direct. Brett wrote a really cool script and um, going to take the the movie uh, to AFM in November and then shoot it in the early spring. 